0: M S W Media Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, September twenty-seventh, twenty twenty one. Today, the Select Committee on the Insurrection issues its first subpoenas. The Crazy Times Carnival Fraudit in Maricopa County finds that Biden won by a larger margin. The Trump Organization must produce a subpoena compliance report to the New York Attorney General Tish James this week. Biden has begun reimbursing Florida school officials since DeSantis docked their pay for mask mandates, and Donald admits to more crimes during a Georgia rally. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hello, everyone. Dana's traveling again today, so it's just you and I. I have an interview a little bit later with Scott Stedman that was featured yesterday on Mueller She Wrote that I think needs to be heard more widely. So I'll have that for you today. I also encourage you to check out Mueller She Wrote and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That's where I drop all the news about old cases finally getting some traction under the Garland Department of Justice. We've got a lot of news today and then we'll have the good news at the end of the show and uh, Like I said, I appreciate all of you. I will be out of town Wednesday taping something up in L.A., but I will have Daily Beans for you that morning with all the news and headlines, so you don't want to miss it. And why don't we uh, jump in, hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. The lead story from the weekend is that the select committee has issued four subpoenas for some folks who will probably want to fight the subpoenas in court, but they will probably have a hard time as I'm sure there will be an expedited review up and down the court system by this Department of Justice, we have to remember that in the olden days when they were stonewalling subpoenas and depositions, it was Bill Barr and you know the Trump administration that would fight and use the full power of the Department of Justice to block these. We don't have that this time. So hopefully these will move quickly. And of course, Benny Thompson has suggested he's the chair of the committee, that he's not beyond, you know, putting some teeth into these subpoenas and having consequences for people who fail to show up. The committee issued subpoenas to two top Trump White House officials, former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and former Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino, a couple of peaches, as well as Kosh Patel, who was serving as Chief of Staff to the Acting Defense Secretary that day on January 6th. An additional subpoena targets longtime Trump advisor Steve Bannon. The subpoenas were announced Thursday evening by the committee, which has moved its inquiry into a new, more aggressive stage, After requesting White House records last month and sending preservation requests for records to telecom and social media companies, Trump and his team have condemned the Select Committee's inquiry since it began, vowing to fight its demands for documents and interviews with claims of executive privilege. But we know the Department of Justice has put out a statement saying, at least for some Department of Justice officials like Jeffrey Clark and Rosen and Donahue, we aren't going to exert executive privilege here. And that's a pretty astounding statement from the institutionalists who are currently leading the executive branch and the Department of Justice, you know, part like subsumed there in the executive branch. So I'm actually quite surprised by that and happily surprised. A, a debate about a former president's ability to restrict access to information and in individuals has already begun in D.C. and it's likely to become dramatically more intense now that these subpoenas have been issued. Along with asking Meadows, Scavino, Patel and Bannon to hand over records, the committee is instructing the four men to appear for depositions in mid-October. Bannon and Scavino did not respond to requests for comment. Meadows could not be reached. Patel issued a statement on Thursday evening, saying, "I'm disappointed, but not surprised, that the committee tried to subpoena me through the press. Through the press, it's actually through the court, but okay. Before seeking my voluntary cooperation, okay, mm-hmm. what I have a feeling, and I think Adam Schiff hinted at that, is that these will be uh, resistant, these folks, to to appear for depositions and hand over documents, so." Might as well get him into the court system now. Cash Patel went on to say, I will continue to tell the truth to the American people about the events of January 6th. Okay, do it under oath, my friend. Trump issued a lengthy statement that said he would fight the subpoenas using executive privilege. In the statement, he also made the type of false claims about the 2020 election that were embraced by his supporters as they attacked the Capitol and tried to overthrow the government. Quote, hopefully the unselect committee, that's his nickname for the select committee, which is stupid, will be calling witnesses to the rigged presidential election of 2020, which is the primary reason that hundreds of thousands of people went to Washington, D.C. in the first place. Hundreds of thousands. Mm. Okay. The executive privilege questions will be especially focused on Meadows and Scavino because of their roles at the White House and access to Trump before, during, and after the insurrection. On the day of the attack, Meadows and Scavino were firsthand witnesses to the president's state of mind and hopes for his speech on the Ellipse, where he urged thousands of protesters To go up to Pennsylvania Avenue, walk up Pennsylvania Avenue, go to the Capitol, and fight like hell for their country. After violence broke out at the Capitol and police shot a rioter, Meadows, working with Scavino and with the help of Trump's daughter, Ivanka, repeatedly tried to get Trump to issue public messages to tell his supporters to stop the protest and leave the Capitol grounds. In a letter accompanying the subpoena to Meadows, the committee chairman, Benny Thompson, writes that the panel has obtained credible evidence, quote unquote, of Meadows' involvement with, quote, the scope of the select committee's inquiry. So that's interesting. The letter cites several examples of Meadows communications in proximity to the former guy leading up to and on the day of the insurrection. Thomas also knows the Justice Department documents reveal that Meadows directly communicated with the highest officials at the Department of Justice requesting investigations into election fraud matters in several states and, quote, made contact with several state officials to encourage investigation of allegations of election fraud. And that brings that into the scope of this investigation, doesn't it? That Something we've been talking about for months on this program and many have been talking about, that you can't separate the big lie and the plot to overthrow the election perpetrated by Donald. You can't separate that from the insurrectionist boots on the ground. Thompson wrote to Scavino that it appears you were with or in the vicinity of the former guy on January 6th and are witness to his activities. You may also have material relevant to his videotaping and tweeting messages on January 6th. The letter cites reports in a new book, Peril by Washington Post writers Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, that Scavino was also with Trump on January 5th, quote, when he and others were considering how to convince members of Congress not to certify the election for Joe Biden. That statement right there is what I put out on January 8th. This was coordinated. And of course, we know Seth Abramson has been writing out in his proof substack about that January 5th meeting. In his letter to Bannon, the select committee writes that the longtime activist and advisor has information relevant to understanding important activities that led to and informed the events at the Capitol on January 6th. Quote, for example, you've been identified as present at the Willard Hotel on January 5th, 2021, during an effort to persuade members of Congress to block the certification of the election the next day and in relation to other activities on January 6th. You are also described as communicating with then President Trump on December 30th and potentially other occasions urging him to plan for and focus his efforts on January 6th. That's sort of creating a template for culpability. And I have to assume the Department of Justice is doing the same thing. It would be really, really weird if they weren't. And I would be very upset if they weren't. I'll be right there with you. And, you know, it's it's interesting saying, you know, that January 5th Willard Hotel meeting to persuade members of Congress to block the certification that goes right along with some of the other evidence that we've seen recently come out in the news, particularly, you know, the, the the letters to the Department of Justice to just say that the election was corrupt and that, you know, Trump and his pals, Republican pals in Congress will take it from there. This was all part of a very, very well planned out plot. Patel, a former aide to Devin Nunes, worked in the White House national security positions under Trump before transferring to the Pentagon. And when the panel requested documents from the Pentagon in August, it mentioned Patel specifically. The committee requested documents and communications concerning possible attempts by the former president to remain in office after January 20th. The panel also asked for communications about martial law. On Thursday, the committee subpoenaed Patel for all documents and communications to, from, or referring to Patel relating to civil unrest, violence, or attacks at the U.S. Capitol, challenging, overturning, or questioning the validity of the 2020 election, or the counting of the Electoral College vote. On January 6th, these events, the insurrection, the big lie, the push to Department of Justice by Meadows to, you know, and Trump to an- announce the election was corrupt, it's all part of the same scheme to overthrow the government. I again for one believe that Garland is investigating that alongside the Select Committee. If he's not, it would be the biggest failure in the history of the Department of Justice. And I'm pretty sure Garland knows that. Along with Trump admitting during a Georgia rally that he had another phone call with Governor Kemp to overturn the will of the people there. We have a great opinion piece by our friend Steve Vladek about additional evidence released by the Department of Justice in the past week that I mentioned a minute ago. And, you know, that's as we heard Chris Ray tell the Homeland Security Committee, he's expecting to see superseding indictments, which I assume would be for seditious conspiracy, because even if he's just superseding already charged people, the highest they have right now is conspiracy. Where do you go from there? Up. You go to seditious conspiracy. If so, that will once again poke holes in that Reuters story saying the DOJ was doing nothing in that vein. And Barb McQuaid has tweeted that Trump and the Trump administration sitting on the information that Dominion voting machines were fine is proof of criminal culpability in this plot. And let me read you what Steve Vladek has to say about it. He says two separate developments this week concerning the 2020 election ought to be assessed. First was the release of a pair of memos penned by former law professor John Eastman articulating a six-point plan for Pence to follow after January 6th to swing the election to Trump. The actual legal analysis in the memos is embarrassingly thin and self-contradictory. Never mind, they completely ignore the relevant procedural rules. Second was the New York Times report that as early as mid-November, the Trump campaign knew most of its claims of widespread election fraud were completely bogus, meaning there was no good faith basis for contesting the results in any state, let alone in enough states to actually have a chance at changing the ultimate result. And this is important because we've always talked, we've talked long about Trump coming out and saying, Uh, but I really thought the election was stolen. I truly believed it. I really believed these theories that I, you know, that I was being told. And that could get you off the hook. That would be your defense, right? Too dumb to crime, remember, with Don Jr. But these documents prove that he was not unaware that these were false. And what these stories have in common, Steve continues, is their complete and utter bad faith. Bad faith on the part of John Eastman, who not only wrote the memos in question, but who also gave a fiery speech at the rally preceding the violence at the Capitol, in which, among other things, he contradicted his own logic. And bad faith on the part of the president and his senior campaign team, who, despite knowing how empty their fraud claims were, continued and to this day continue to air them. Steve continues The notion that Eastman, Trump, and his campaign team were acting in bad faith is neither new nor surprising. But it's not just their bad faith that these stories reveal. It's that of everyone who has supported and continues to support them. As Russ put it, ignorance by itself is not bad faith, but persistence in ignorance is. And that's what I was talking about. And as more and more stories like this continue to make their way into the public domain, the persistence of the former president's supporters in their ignorance ought to be called out for what it is. It's their bad faith, too. Take the Eastman memos, he says. At their core, they attempt to conjure a means by which the Constitution's 12th Amendment Adopted in 1804 after the messy election of 1800, magically empowers the vice president to unilaterally decide which states have and have not chosen properly certified electors. But the 12th Amendment says nothing of the kind. Indeed, the only time it refers to the vice president's role in counting electoral votes is when it provides that, quote, the president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of representatives, open all certificates of the votes and they shall be counted. That's it. That's all it says. And from there, Eastman not only divines substantive authority to decide whether the certifications are valid, but he also concludes that the Electoral Count Act of 1887, the statute that actually provides a procedure for resolving disputes over certified electors, is likely unconstitutional. Why? Because it violates the 12th Amendment. And he continues saying this legal analysis is bad enough, but the memos never stop to wonder whether the underlying result for which they're advocating, that a vice president can unilaterally override the will of the people, is actually a good thing. It just assumed that the goal is to keep Trump in office, whatever the price. All that the memos concede on this front is that Pence's gambit would provoke, quote, howls, of course, from the Democrats. As long as the scheme is couched in partisan terms, the fact that it's also the end of our democratic government is seemingly besides the point. Ditto in the New York Times report, he says, about the Trump campaign's fraud complaints. As the Times story makes clear, by November 19th, the Trump campaign had prepared a lengthy memo outlining why the outlandish claims being leveled against Dominion voting systems and Smartmatic were baseless. Although the Dominion and Smartmatic claims were hardly the only fraud claims leveled by Trump and his supporters, they were simply the ones that, in an alternate reality, could have been widespread enough to sufficiently impact the election results. But in the seven weeks between November 19th and January 6th, and throughout the eight months since these lies were and have been continually reiterated by Trump and his supporters, even though when testifying under oath in court, the best proof the campaign representatives have come up with is that we have no underlying definite facts that it wasn't. (laughs) What these stories reiterate is there's simply no remaining good faith disagreements about the 2020 election. There are no good faith factual claims that, if, if proven, would undermine the basis for Joe Biden's victory. And there are no good faith legal claims to the same effect. It's bad faith all the way down. To many, indeed, to most, perhaps the conclusion isn't a surprise, but with every additional data point, it becomes clearer that those agreeing with these lies and scams bear their own responsibility as as well. So there's more to that story. It's by Steve Vladek. It's an MSNBC. Check it out. And in other news, after months of delay and blistering criticism, the review of the 2020 election in Arizona's largest county, Maricopa, ordered up and financed by Republicans, has failed to show that Trump was cheated of victory. Instead, the report from Cyber Ninjas said it found just the opposite. It tallied 99 additional votes for Biden and 261 fewer votes for Trump in Maricopa County. And, uh, quote, the truth is truth and numbers are numbers, said Karen Fan, She's the Republican Senate president. Review officials implicitly acknowledged Biden's victory, noting that there were no substantial differences between the new tally of votes and the official count by Maricopa County election officials. But they also claimed that other factors, most if not all contested by reputable election experts, left the results very close to the margin of error for the election. And this is what I discussed with Adrian Fontes last week when I put beans on. You know what? They can't, just like Barr, couldn't manufacture fraud in the election out of thin air. You know, all he could do was cast doubt on mail-in voting. He, but he couldn't take it that that extra step and conjure fraud where it didn't exist. Here we have the same thing, and this is what I speculated that they'll put the numbers out and the numbers will be right. Maybe they'll maybe I said maybe they'd redact the numbers, but they didn't. They, they put them out there probably to lend legitimacy to the process. But, you know, the fact remains that it's still they're, they're still clouding. They're still muddying the waters, as I said, as I said, they would. And as Adrian Fontes said, they would. They can't manufacture voting fraud, but they can certainly make people uncomfortable with the results and continue the grift. Right. And uh, in the hours long presentation before the state senate, the review officials did not focus on the numbers. As I said, they wouldn't. Instead, they presented a blizzard of hypotheticals, none verified, most hinting darkly at a tainted election. They came prepared with slides, ballot scans, and discussions of arcane election rules. Officials with the review claimed that duplicate ballots might have been counted, the signatures on ballot envelopes were suspect, 23,000 or so mail in ballots might have come from wrong addresses, 10,000 or so voters might have voted in multiple counties. <laughs> they said thousands of voters might have moved out of the county or state, that mail ballots never sent to voters might have been counted, and that 282 voters might have been dead. And at the presentation's end, Ms. Fan called for Arizona's attorney general or Republican to investigate the claims of irregularities. More investigation is needed, therefore perpetuating the big lie. None of the claims held up, according to experts on election administration who monitored the proceedings. A presentation on voter signature verification by one member of the review team, that's Ayudhari, that's Shiva, Dr. Shiva, embodied the odd mix of solemnity and implausibility. Appearing remotely, he used a series of slides to question the validity of some of the signatures on mail ballot envelopes and criticized the county's verification process. Still, by focusing attention on Donald's false claim of a stolen election and setting off a furious battle over its credibility, the presentation and the report succeeded at something else, amplifying Trump's baseless claims. Inflaming his supporters and undermining support for Democratic elections by setting a precedent of privately funded, partisan reviews of long settled election results, as I said. Critics said the result of the review would raise the bar for Republican politicians in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, who, under pressure from Donald and his supporters, have mounted their own Crazy Times audits. Under similar pressure, the Texas Secretary of State's office on Thursday announced a comprehensive forensic audit on the results from four of the state's largest counties, the ones that voted for Biden. In fact, the Republican inquiry might not be over. Senate investigators still want to examine Maricopa County computer servers for evidence of tampering, even though county officials insist they have no connection to election machinery. So while it's hilarious, that's again that cyber ninjas found more votes for Biden and Biden has now won the election so many times, I think he's the 54th president. This is no laughing matter. The grift continues. As I said, Adrian Fontes and I were correct. The number can't be falsified, but the findings keep the results uncertain enough to continue grifting. So they justify and legitimize the bullshit audit by getting the numbers right, but encourage audits in other states. They encourage it, and and it's perpetuating the big lie by shrouding the findings in a cloak of uncertainty so they can keep bilking Trump supporters for money and continue to chip away at the people's faith in fair elections. While top-line results are far from what many conservatives had hoped for, Republicans in the Arizona legislature could, in the next session, seize on a host of recommendations in the report based on the same faulty data and methodology, and use both as a justification and a roadmap to enact more voter suppression laws. The report suggests, for example, that the legislature should consider whether a change of address would suspend a voter's enrollment on the widely popular permanent early voting list, which automatically sends ballots to some people who vote by mail. Roughly 75% of all voters in Arizona are on that list. 75% of all voters. That suggestion follows a law passed in May that removed voters from the list if they didn't cast a ballot at least once every four years. That's an interesting number to pick, four years. During the most recent legislative session, Republicans in Arizona had been prolific in drafting bills that would affect elections in the state, introducing 57 total bills, 32 of which would have added new restrictions to voting or shifted the balance of power in election administration. Seven of those bills became law. And the report makes further legislative suggestions that would add more restrictions to voting to include multiple ways to further purge voters from rolls, including if entries are not a direct match with government-issued ID election experts pointed to the corrosive effect of the decision to stage partisan reviews of the election results. Those people stormed the Capitol because they believed the election was fraudulent when it was not. That is Matt Barreto, a professor of political science at the University of California, L.A., UCLA, a faculty director of the Voting Rights Project. He went on to say, and had we had leaders who just accepted the results and encouraged their team to try harder next time, we could have avoided the very ugly fiasco. Also in the news this weekend, from our friend Adam Klasfeld at Law & Crime, the Trump Organization, the Trump Organization recently indicted, must comply with subpoenas from New York Attorney General Letitia James in connection with her investigation into whether the company improperly inflated assets on four properties to obtain tax benefits. That's according to a newly unsealed stipulation in court. It was unsealed on Thursday. The three-page order gives the Trump Organization until September 30th to produce a, quote, report in reasonable detail of actions taken to preserve, collect, and produce hard copy and electronic documents responsive to the attorney general's subpoenas. The Trump real estate empire and the New York's top prosecutor who had assisted Manhattan DA Cy Vance in the criminal prosecution of the former president's business secretly agreed to the agreement on September 3rd. This is partly Cy Vance. And it makes me think that they have evidence of destruction of evidence. You know, maybe they uh, maybe they've destroyed some of these hard copy and electronic documents. Let's ask them for a, a report and let's give them until September 30th to tell us the actions taken to preserve, collect and produce those documents. That's what I think. Those are my beans. They have evidence of destruction of evidence, which is obstruction of justice. A very serious crime. Tish James began her investigation in March 2019 and said these disclosures are a long time coming. For more than a year now, she says, the Trump Organization has failed to adequately respond to our subpoenas, hiding behind procedural delays and excuses. Once again, the court has ordered the Trump Organization must turn over the information and documents we're seeking, otherwise face an independent third party that will ensure that that takes place. Our work will continue undeterred because no one is above the law. Under the terms of this agreement, the Trump Organization must identify the custodians of such records. As any appraisals or other valuations, purchase records, and any balance sheets, income statements, general ledgers, <laughs> second set of books, maybe, maybe something found in Calamari's basement, financial statements or similar materials reflecting the value or financial performance of any Trump organization property whose value is identified in or incorporated into any statement of financial condition. One of the exhibits to the agreement lists 25 custodians, four of whom are Trump family members, junior. Donald, Ivanka and Eric, and the last of whom is the company's now indicted former CFO, Alan Weisselberg. The company must also ascertain the likely locations of responsive records, including by means of interviews with potential custodians and other current and former Trump organization personnel, except with respect to former Trump organization personnel, where commercially reasonable efforts are unsuccessful in procuring such an interview, according to an exhibit. Makes me really wonder, about that co-conspirator basement with tax documents found in it because she's asking them to ascertain the likely locations of responsive records so gosh we found a box of records in the basement that they didn't turn over and when we told them legally they had to turn them over are they hiding are they obstructing what else are they hiding who else has documents in their basement my guess is maconi told them where all the documents are buried so to speak and uh, now they want to hear from the trump organization You tell us where the documents are and see what they leave out. Again, just speculation. Tish James already grilled Eric Trump last year before Election Day after a New York judge rejected a request by by then-president Sion for a post-November 3rd delay. Erstwhile first daughter Ivanka Trump complained in the past about being dragged into the state AG's investigations, both in New York and D.C., and Tish James probe spun off of a congressional testimony of Trump's former fixer Michael Cohen which included copies of Donald Trump's financial statements for three years, 2011, 2012 and 2013. Quote, Cohen testified these statements inflated the value of Trump's assets to obtain favorable terms for loans and insurance coverage, while simultaneously deflating the value of other assets to reduce real estate taxes. Other notable custodians of the records include the Trump Organization's executive vice president, Alan Garten, and Trump's longtime executive assistant, Rona Graf. Trump Organization's counsel did not immediately respond to an email for comment. And finally, from NBC, the Biden administration Thursday began compensating some Florida school board members whose pay was docked this month for defying Ron DeSantis' ban on mask mandates. That's according to the Education Department. As part of the Biden administration's Project Safe Grant program, an initial sum of one hundred and forty eight thousand dollars has been awarded to Alachua County school board members who voted this summer to mandate masks in the county schools as Florida developed some of the worst rates of covid infection in the country in the world. Education Secretary Cardona said in a statement that the first wave of reimbursements would send a clear message to school board members nationwide. You will not be punished for overriding GOP governors and legislatures to make schools safer for children. The Department of Education also published a notice inviting more districts to apply for these grants. As we know, in July, DeSantis signed an executive order saying the state would withhold funding from any district that required students to wear masks, and Broward County voted to defy that order. A state judge upheld the county's mask mandate a few weeks ago as Florida was setting records for COVID cases affecting children and teens at a higher rate than any other age group. The state education department decided to press forward with withholding the salaries. Daniel Dominic, executive director of the American Association for School Administrators, says students deserve the opportunity to return to school in person safely this fall. And our nation's superintendents must have not only the authority to make the decisions about what that reopening looks like, but also freedom from unnecessary political and punitive retaliation from state leaders. So good on them. All right, stick around. I'll be right back with our Muller She Wrote interview from over the weekend with founder of Forensic News, Scott Stedman. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG for The Daily Beans. And today's show is brought to you by our new sponsor, Tomboy X. I am so glad I found Tomboy X because I hated my old bralettes and undies. They never fit well. They never looked right on me, but Tomboy X created underwear that makes me feel like this underwear doesn't just fit me. It gets me. You know, I'm really digging my new Tomboy X boy shorts and these bralettes I got. They have the pride and wonder print on them. They look amazing. I feel like Wonder Woman all day long since 2014. These are like my new underoos. Remember remember those? And they're so comfy. And they've been doing this since 2014. Tomboy X has been making brazenly unapologetic underwear for all bodies, all shapes, all genders, and all sizes. From boxer briefs to bikinis, boy shorts to bras, Every pair of Tomboy X is created to fit you and how you see yourself. And they've expanded beyond underwear, too. Each product was built on values of quality, fit, and inclusivity. They pay attention to every detail, like no back seams for a wedgie-free experience that never rides up, and super comfy, silky smooth waistbands that never roll down. Wherever you fall on the size, shape, or this-is-me spectrum, Tomboy X is the underwear your body will love. And with their love-at-first-wear guarantee, you can order risk-free while you find your perfect fit. Discover your inner Tomboy and uh, let let me get you started with a special discount. Go to TomboyX.com and enter code DAILYBEANS, all one word, to get an extra 20% off. That's 20% off when you enter the code DAILYBEANS at TomboyX.com. Again, TomboyX.com. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Joining me today for the Fantasy Indictment League, first time we've had a guest join us for the Fantasy Indictment League, is investigative journalist and founder of forensicnews.net, dot Scott Stedman. Scott, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good. This is an interesting week, I, I, and I, I imagine more interesting weeks to come as statutes of limitations start to run out on uh, 2016 campaign finance violations.
1: Yeah, we're running up against that wall, and I think we're going to see a few kind of loose ends tied up here pretty soon, hopefully.
0: Yeah, I agree. And and the reason I'm, I have you on today is because on Monday, as we know, Department of Justice indicted two GOP operatives named Weed and Benton for straw donations. They dis- disguised the true source of a donation made in 2016 to Republicans. RNC, I think it ended up in, in a Trump pack, right, Uh America First, or something. And I wanted to just briefly have you go over the timeline, the crime line, if
1: you will. <laughs> yeah. So these guys, Weed and Benton, doesn't it sound like they should have a TV show? Like that name is just so perfect. <laughs> like
0: Buddy Cops.
1: Weed yeah. And, Benton. and yeah. one guy's like Doug Weed, I think, 75, and Benton's 43. Um, yeah. So Doug's getting too old for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so they have a. Um, they have multiple connections in in Eastern Europe, um, but they know this one guy named Roman Vasilenko, and he, um, he was a Russian naval veteran for like a decade in the nineties. And, um, he was in charge of one of their financial services in their naval bases. Um, and then he studied for a little bit, became a businessman. And in 2016, he pops up and he wants a picture picture with Trump. Um, and if you look at the, the emails that he's sending in the DOJ indictment, he says, I, I, you know, uh, weed is relaying the message. He really wants this picture with Trump. And so, um, you know, weed arranges a, uh, fundraiser, uh, that they can all attend. And he takes, you know, Vasilenko's money along with, uh, Benton and funnels it into the Trump pack, um, allowing them access to this, uh, event and, The Russian guy gets the picture and, um, you know, the Russian money ends up with with the Trump pack.
0: Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that my first thought was, "Ooh, I wonder if this originated with the Mueller investigation Mm. and was handed off in one of those, you know, Appendix D things. But that didn't make sense to me because this would be something within his purview. He, in fact, indicted Sam Patton, who did the exact same thing. And so then it becomes a question of, when did this investigation start? Where was it born? Was it born out of another investigation perhaps handed off by Mueller like say Tom Barrick, I don't know, I'm I'm just speculating, I'm just throwing names out there. But trying to figure out the uh, the oranges uh, you <laughs> will, of this particular investigation has really kind of got me a little bit flummoxed. Like it seems like it's something that would have ultimately originally Come out of the Mueller investigation, but if if he had found this, I feel like he would have indicted this.
1: I, I would even argue that this is more in his purview than the Patton stuff because even Patton was dealing with Ukrainian oligarchs. Like obviously they're involved, but this guy is you know like I like I said he's a, he's a naval veteran for the you know the Soviet army, and then he you know. Um, he hosts like a, a yearly awards for for the military where all these high profile people in Russia come. And you wrote in your piece, these are pretty
0: much all the red flags, no pun intended, of of a of a, of a Kremlin agent.
1: Exactly, yeah. And and so for me, that's like directly in the the Mueller purview. So um, one thing I wanted to point out is that in the indictment um, announcement piece, they the last sentence they said was that the FBI in San Diego is investigating. And that was weird to me for a couple of reasons. One present tense, like the indictments have already come down, um, but they are investigating. And then the San Diego connection, I haven't found yet. Like the companies that, that Benton and uh, Doug weed um, are involved in are either East coast, or I think uh, there's a couple in Texas. Um, So, you know, I think there are some indications that it was, you know, this investigation started maybe more recently. Um, You know, if they are still investigating and and Mueller didn't find it, I don't know. I just I find it weird that it is kind of happening now.
0: I think the the closest we came and I live in Sandy. I'm I'm SoCal. I'm on the left coast. So I paid very close attention to anything that even came close to our area. And the closest thing I can remember is you remember the guy Pineda? Yeah. Who made the f- the fake identifications for the Russian nationals who came over and posed as campaign, uh, you know, re- uh, Republican mm-hmm. campaign operatives. That's the, the trolls, closest yeah. we've gotten to to Southern California. And I mean, it would be a stretch. We would be bending over to backwards to try to make any kind of a connection. And and again, I'm doing that. I'm 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 dotless and I am rarely dotless here.
1: Yeah. So another thing that came to mind with San Diego particularly is port of entry. I don't know. A lot of things we see with, um, you know, FBI activity and major cities like San Diego is a major hub, right. For anyone that wants to import, that's something that came to mind. Um, but other than that, like I'm, I'm clueless as well as to why San Diego specifically, um, But I do think like the present tense of FBI is investigating still, Um, you know, maybe there is more to come here. And uh, today, Jay Sekulow signed on to be uh, Doug Weed's attorney. So obviously, uh, you know, Trump's inner circle is has seen this and is kind of at least tangentially, you know, you know, worried about what this might expose.
0: Mm, Yeah, although they seemingly didn't have a problem with Constantine Kalimnik and Manafort and and all, but well, I guess they did. They fired him and tried to cover it up. To be fair,
1: yeah, they spun their way out of it.
0: <laughs> but um, uh, talk a little bit about because there's a there's a little bit of a twist here, right? I think that the reason that the Trump camp is interested in this is that this one of these guys was pardoned by Trump for the same kind of shit.
1: Yeah, so Jesse Benton, um, he basically ran the same scheme with different characters back in. I want to say it was twenty. I believe when he was working on the, the Ron Paul campaign. Um, so he basically funneled money to like a state Senator to, for him to switch his vote to Ron Paul, um, covertly. And, uh, so Trump pardoned him for that offense because Rand Paul, uh, lobbied the the white house about this. And he was, uh, was one of the guys like in the list with Manafort and like that six page list that we got in December of 2020, of pardons. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, he did the exact same thing on a much larger scale with, uh, you know, a foreign Russian foreign national and to the Trump campaign. And, you know, we have this picture with the Russian guy with Trump. And we know that Benton worked on uh, one of Trump's super PACs. And so we know that Trump knows that this happened, right? He met the Russian guy and he knows Benton. Um, I'd be surprised if it didn't come up in those pardon negotiations. And, you know, that that opens the door to, um, you know, analyzing Trump's intent with why he actually wanted to pardon Benton. You know, was it actually because of the state senator case or, you know? Yeah. Did he think that this Russian thing was coming down the line?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I would say, I mean, I haven't seen this pardon, but I'm assuming the reason they're able to bring charges because the pardon was pretty narrow in scope and just pardon him of this one particular crime. Because generally, yeah. what it, does, it sounds like it wasn't a blanket pardon, like what they did for uh, Flynn Manafort, Stone, etc. Although Stones is a little bit narrower than the others. All right. Thanks, everybody, to listening to this Scott Stedman interview from Mueller. She wrote from Sunday's show. We're going to be right back with more Scott Stedman right after this message. Stick around. Hey, everybody, it's AG. And this segment of the pod is brought to you by Chili Sleep. I love this. Science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering your core body temperature. Temperature-controlled sleep restores testosterone levels, repairs muscles after a hard day's work. It improves cognitive function, so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. Chili Sleep makes customizable, climate-controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. Chili Sleep makes the Uller and Cube Sleep Systems hydro-powered temperature-controlled mattress toppers. They fit over your existing mattress to provide you ideal sleep temperatures. These luxury mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold. These sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep and stay asleep and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. You know how much I love sleep and how important it is to me. Uh, for an extra layer of comfort, they also make a chili blanket, the only weighted blanket that can also be paired with a control unit for the ultimate sweat-free sleep. I sleep super hot and I am perimenopausal. I get night sweats, so chili sleep has been amazing for me. I've been sleeping so much better, so head over to chilisleep.com beans to learn more uh, about a special offer uh, available exclusively for Daily Beans listeners And only for a limited time. That's chili, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash beans to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day. And talk about being refreshed. I also want to tell you about the Nebbia shower by Moen. Okay, this is the best upgrade I've ever gotten. I just remodeled my bathroom and this is what stayed. Everything else went. This is backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook. It's designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that actually saves water and is anything but ordinary. This is the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower. It's Nebbia's most advanced shower yet, with twice the coverage but half the water usage. That's so important for the climate. Despite using 45% less water, its spray is 81% more powerful than the competition. Nebbia's atomized droplets rinse shampoo and conditioner out of the thickest, longest hair, and it's easy to install. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. I love my Nebbia. My shower experience is like an invigorating steam room combined with a shower and kind of like a waterfall all at once. The Nebbia by Moen spa shower starts at just 199 And for Daily Beans listeners, we have a deal. The first 100 people to use the code BEANS at Nebia.com will get 10% off all Nebbia products. Now Nebbia never does deals like this. So this is a great deal to jump on. Go to Nebbia.com slash beans. That's Nebbia, N-E-B-I-A dot com slash beans and check out what they have to offer. Again, the first 100 people to use the code BEANS while checking out will save 10% on all Nebbia products. The only exception to this is pre-order products, as Nebbia is currently offering free shipping in the U.S. on these products. Again, that's nebbia.com slash beans and use code BEANS to save 10%. All right, everybody, welcome back. Let's get back to that Scott Stedman interview. I was going to ask you, like, I have it written here, why wasn't the Russian indicted? And then that, together with your statement that San Diego FBI is investigating... I'm wondering if this Russian if this Russian isn't tied to additional uh, FEC scams that would ha- that would uh, you know we know that the statute of limitations clock doesn't start ticking until you stop crime in th- in that particular scheme. So right. maybe he is still being investigated uh, for for maybe other donations to other entities or other criminal activity because it seems to me like if this were it, that this Russian would, and, and the translator would have been indicted in this indictment as well.
1: Right. I think there's, you're really onto something there. Um, there have been like, I didn't put this in the piece cause it's kind of speculative, but there have been kind of Russian forum discussions about this guy's company called life is good. Um, the, the website's pretty ridiculous. It's like you pay p- people for life advice. Um, so there's been discussion about that being like a pyramid scheme um so i was gonna say do you want to so, start so, one
0: well, you and i could start one just, yeah yeah life is terrible per hour yeah life is terrible <laughs> just email us we'll tell you all the fucking ways life is terrible yeah. right now it's simp- super yeah. and you know what
1: just 50 bucks yeah and 50 <laughs> bucks an hour <laughs> But anyway, but yeah, yeah the, maybe no, these are some dots.
0: A, maybe we have some dots now, finally. we No, can it's, a, it's
1: a good point because, like, that company is incorporated in Belize, and I think it changed from the U.K. to Cyprus at one point. So there's a lot of, like, weird financial activity with this guy. And the other point on why he's not indicted, I think, is because, you know, he's never going to come to the U.S. again anyway <laughs> because he's in trouble.
0: Yeah, that was kind of one of the lessons we learned from uh, the indictments uh, against Russians and at least Russian entities in in the Mueller investigation was that what we when we had Concord management come in, hire American lawyers and then abuse our federal court system to try to get our sources and methods going back to World War Two through discovery. And then when they did get some discovery, they they used they falsified those documents and used it to say we were able to hack the Mueller investigation. And so it seemed to be more of a more trouble than it was worth to indict these Russian nationals. So it may just be as simple as that.
1: And I do think like that's a it's a um, I don't say like upcoming, but it's more of a prominent strategy that the Russians are using is like get things tangled in court and then try to spin every kind of deposition, every court document you can to feed that disinformation campaign. Right. It's such it's actually a good like evil genius kind of strategy. Right. Like you have to play by the court rules and like you can depose people and you can get, get certain documents. And, th- you know, that's a tactic that they're using to kind of feed this kind of misinformation beast that you know we're dealing with now.
0: Yeah, for real. Uh, any other, um, before I let you go, do you, do you think, you know, we talked about at the beginning of of our discussion here that we are winding down the statute of limitations five years for these federal uh, campaign violations from 2016. Uh, it's coming now to the to code red, right? Because we are almost exactly yeah. five years out from the election. And uh, ha- have you heard or do you think uh, that you may be having some stories coming out on ForensicNews.net about anything else that's in the works? Because it seems to me that this Department of Justice is really good at keeping its cards close to its vest.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that characterization. I, I think there's things like, um, you know, I don't have any sort of specific information on this, but I do think like the line to to Congress, um the Don Jr. lying to Congress so blatant and the Eric Prince stuff. And we got those stories that they were like referred to the DOJ and then kind of petered out. Um, so I do think that could possibly rear its head again. Or maybe and then the a other reopening kind
0: of... of the Stormy Daniels uh, individual one um, case in the Southern District of New York, which is you and I know, because we follow this so closely. The you know, they, the judge was like, you need to. Hey, Bill Barr in the Southern District, you need to indict or get off the pot. And yeah. they closed the case. And and that doesn't mean that you can't reopen it, but we haven't heard, again, nothing. We've heard nothing.
1: Mm-hmm. And then I would say that the other kind of 2016 story that is yet to be fully told, and I'm st- pissed about it, is the, the Alpha Bank story. Like, there's never an answer given to what that was. I think most of the explanations that Alpha gave are garbage and, like, very... Um, easily disproven. And I think there's compelling evidence. I want to you know, do an article about this in a week or two, but I think there's compelling evidence that the FBI shut that down way too quickly. The IG report says they shut it down February of 20, uh, 2017, like pretty much right when the Russia stuff was ramping up. And I think, you know, there's, there's evidence now that they, they kind of messed up that investigation. I think things after that investigation relied on the FBI closing it and, you know, basically relying on their word, right? Um, when I think there is evidence that they kind of bungled it in a way.
0: Well, Durham would have you believe that there was nothing, there was nothing there and that Sussman lied about it to <laughs> the FBI or at least he lied about, about who his client
1: was. Which, which yeah, that, that it, it really pisses me off.
0: Yeah, which even, and we know, and we've talked about this successfully on this show, even if they yeah. if you told him he was working for Hillary Clinton, there's nothing illegal about that. Exactly. One thing I, I have a, I have a request. I have a um, sure a Dick Clark sort of dedication hotline request for you. <sighs> I would like to see a refreshed version, if you will, of Appendix D, the the fourteen cases handed off to other mm. agencies in the Mueller report. Do you know if anyone, or would you be willing to do a FOIA request? F- to, you know, hit the refresh button on that. I'd like to see where the redaction yeah. bars are off and where the redaction bars are still on. I would really be interested. I haven't seen an updated appendix d in a a while
1: Hmm. yeah i mean i'd have to figure out which agency to foia that would actually be responsive but yeah let's do it some of your ideas and i'll i'll get that going
0: because we just you know i was just talking to marcy wheeler and as it turns out some of these some of these uh rick gates 302s have had the characterization of redactions change from for privacy reasons to because of open and ongoing matters so you know in a in a FOIA request when they talk you know when you request documents they can redact them for several different exemptions and the previous exemption under bar for for this particular 302 these rick gates 302s was privacy and now it's been changed to b7a which is for open and what was the subject
1: matter on that do you remember
0: uh no because the rest of it was redacted
1: (laughs) oh okay Hmm. but but she
0: noted that the that the redaction reason had changed and so i was like that's fancy so i'd be interested to see not only if any of the redaction bars have come off appendix d but if any of the reasons for redaction under FOIA requests have
1: changed Hmm. let's get that going send me your ideas and i want to want to send that off that's a good idea yeah
0: because if something used to be for privacy and now it's for open and ongoing that's a good
1: catch by marcy that's a great i mean that's obviously purposeful right like someone made that change for a reason
0: yeah she's she's uh she's amazing so thank you so much tell everyone where they can find you and support you and support the investigative journalism that you that you do and and because i think thank you just
1: the website forensicnews.net and then our main funding sources on Patreon. Kind of like you guys, patreon.com slash forensic news. And yeah, just share. We're on social media everywhere. Tell a friends.
0: All right. Let me know when you want to start a podcast. We'll get you in up <laughs> with MSW Media.
1: <laughs> Sounds good.
0: All right. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Scott Stedman. Hey, everybody. Thanks for supporting The Beans. This portion of the show is sponsored by Upstart. What would you do if you didn't have any more high interest loans or credit card debt? With Upstart, you can pay off your existing debt quickly and easily and start living your life again. Upstart is the fast, easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off high-interest credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Rather than looking at your credit score alone, Upstart considers other factors like your income, current employment, and credit history. To find you a smarter rate for your loan, you can check your rate without impacting your credit score in minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payment today when you go to upstart.com/dailybeans. That's upstart.com/dailybeans. Please use our URL so they know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and other certain information provided in your loan application. Just head to upstart.com/dailybeans. And today's show is also brought to you by Monk Pack. Okay, if you've been listening to Daily Beans for a while, you know how much I love Monk Pack. They make the most delicious snacks with close to no sugar. It's almost impossible to find a healthy snack that tastes good and is filling and satisfying. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain less than one gram of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 150 calories per bar. And they taste amazing. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle and the perfect snack for anyone who wants to get from meal to meal satisfied. Anyone who wants to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs, too. You don't have to be in keto. And you can do this without sacrificing taste. The Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars have a perfect balance of sweet and salty that you crave. And they have that crunch that you want from whole seeds and nuts. And uh, they still manage to be soft and chewy. It's incredible. They come in caramel sea salt, peanut butter dark chocolate, and sea salt dark chocolate. My favorite right now is peanut butter dark chocolate. So good. So they're keto-friendly, gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO. They have no soy, trans fats, sugar alcohols, or artificial colors. A subscription also saves me 10% on every order, and they ship to me automatically, so I always have them in stock. And we have a special deal for listeners. You get 20% off your first purchase of any MonkPack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code dailybeans, all one word, at checkout. MonkPack is so confident in their amazing, delicious snacks. It's backed with 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer, so there's no risk. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's monkpack, M U N K P A C K.com. Select any product, then enter code DailyBeans all one word at checkout to save twenty percent off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on, and we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we're- And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, idioms, idiots of the Senate, misheard lyrics, a new hallelujah verse, (laughs) uh, shared swears, find the cat, what the mutt, happy places, anything you have, shit kids say is really fun too. You can send it to us at dailybeanspod.com and then click on contact. So let's kick this off with a submission from Lisa, pronouns she and her. First, I want to say how grateful I am to Allison and Dana for making my mornings. I listen every morning as I drink my coffee and watch my dogs, Daisy and Ranger, romp in the backyard before i have to leave for work that sounds like a really nice morning lisa i know you've heard it before but you both have helped so many of the listeners get through some rough shit we don't take that lightly and i know i speak for our community when i say a sincere and heartfelt thank you thank you so much lisa and on behalf of dana who's not here today big hugs anyway the good news lisa says in my rural ruby red county in a blue state the former guys flags and signs are everywhere and now include a substantial number of fuck biden flags My nine-mile commute to my job at our local hospital is full of these flags and signs. I realize it's a stupid thing, but I give every flag and sign the middle finger salute as I drive by. There's one particular home right around the corner from my home that flies a Trump 2024 flag, a fuck Biden flag, a Confederate flag, and a thin blue line flag. Recently, the house right next door to the MAGA household went up for sale and it was sold. Friday, as I returned home from work, I saw the new owners in the house next door had their own yard sign and flag. Their yard sign is in this house. We believe Black Lives Matter, Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Love is love. Kindness is everything. And the flag, oh, that wonderful flag, just a few yards from Trump 2024 flag. It's a trans pride flag. I can only imagine how much that pisses off the MAGA asshole next door and hopefully makes for some of the neighbors feel more welcome. And I'm here for it. As pet tax, please see a pic of my best boy, Ranger. No need to guess his breed. It's pretty obvious. Ranger is giving his opinion on the former guy. (laughs) It's a blip. Meh what a beautiful lab. Thank you, Lisa, for that submission. And I, I appreciate the middle finger salute to each one of those things on the way. And I love that that new neighbor has trans pride and that that amazing other sign about, you know, what we believe in this house. I love that one. I've got a lot of them in my, in my neighborhood here. Of course, we're blue. We're blue. We're not ruby red, but awesome submission. Thank you. Next up from Barb, pronoun she and her. Hello, AGDG and Amy. I have a submission for Shit Kids Say. When my youngest was little, they were looking for something they had lost. After searching to the point of tears, they pleaded with me to find it, using my adult supervision. I felt bad for laughing so hard while they were crying, and I tried to explain that while I would help them look, my vision is no better than theirs. Ah, adult supervision. (laughs) For pet tax, I'm submitting a picture of my three pups. Don't bother with what the mutt, as your guess is as good as ours. They're all chihuahua mixes of some kind, although the little one on the far left might be closer to purebred. They're all rescues, so we don't really know. These little love bugs have convinced me to give up meat, not to mention giving up sex because they always try to find a way back to break things up when my husband and I get intimate. <laughs> These are such beautiful babies. Oh, hello. I love the middle one too, like a little corgi chihuahua almost. And that's what's that, like a Basenji chihuahua on the right. I don't know. They're beautiful, but you're right. I, I won't guess. Just adorable babies. Thank you for those. Next up from Evan, another hallelujah verse for our former dear leader. All right, here we go. You claimed you won, but you had no proof. Your MAGA army scaled the roof. You want to overthrow the union, do you? Just get the fuck away from there. You, your kids, your crazy hair. Just go away and we'll sing hallelujah. (laughs) Your crazy hair. Nice, Evan. Thank you. Thank you for that. I love singing in the morning. Next up, Anne, pronouns she and her. Hello, Beans Queens. In July, Ernie, the boxer Boston Terrier mix, suffered a back injury that left his hind end partially paralyzed. Oh, he was running across the field when he shrieked and fell down. I took him to the emergency vet where they had diagnosed an ANPE, something unpronounceable that means he had a clot of something lodged in his spine. Fortunately, it didn't require surgery and he's been slowly recovering at first walking with his hind end in the sling, and then by himself. He's mostly back to his old happy self. Picks attached of Ernie and his kitties, Sunny and Stormy. In this house, everyone lounges on the furniture in the color of which they are assigned to help keep the illusion that mom is on top of housekeeping. Except for Ernie, who gets up to sleep wherever he wants. Thanks for all you do to keep us informed. (laughs) Oh, Oh, see, okay. So the black and white dog is in a black and white bed. The ginger kitty is in a ginger bed. The gray kitty is on the gray couch. Right. So the hair, you can't see the hair. Very good. Very good. These are beautiful babies. Thank you for that submission. Next up from Steve, pronouns he and him, misheard lyric and a confession. Hello. For the longest time, I misheard Paul Simon's homeward bound lyrics where my love lies waiting silently for me. And I heard where my love life's waiting silently for me. (laughs) Now that I'm 60, and a given to self-examination, I find my misreading of those lyrics mirrored who I was for a long time. I was solipsistic, misogynistic, and just downright selfish in my dealings with women, my preferred paramours. It was enlightening to realize this, not to mention a bit hard to swallow. Moving forward, I'm much more aware of others, not just potential mates. Big surprise, I'm still single. But in general, I see people and the world differently. I now see that sharing with others without asking what's in it for me has opened up a new world of experience. Truly listening to others and learning from them is far more enriching than just hoping I might get to bust a nut by the end of the evening. Thanks for all you do. P.S. I was homesick with COVID. Having been vaccinated, I didn't suffer too much. Get vaccinated. Thanks. Thank you, Steve. That's a good confession. I appreciate it. And we have another hallelujah verse from Aaron Pronouns, he and him. All right, let's see. You send a verse up to the beans to listen to those lovely queens, but you don't really care for scansion, do ya? You squeeze the words into the line without a thought for verse or rhyme and see just how many words you can fit into them, the time offered by the meter and melody when you want to sing a verse of hallelujah. (laughs) Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate you. Uh, All right, finally from Anonymous, no pronouns given. I live in a rural area of Illinois. If you're unaware of the political dynamics in Illinois, the state outside of Chicagoland is pretty red. The rural areas are as Trumpy as any southern state. My daughter goes to a very small high school, about 275 students total. And yesterday, our students elected a trans student onto the homecoming court. This feels like an incredible progress in any school, but when you consider the political and social dynamics of where we live, it makes everything more exciting. I know folks on the coasts and in blue and heavily populated areas, sometimes write-off areas that seem unreachable for progress, but there are big positive changes happening even here in the cornfields. I also attended a small high school in the early 90s. I can't believe how far we've come in just one generation. Of course, there was a backlash from some students who were quickly suspended for bullying. The reaction from my community could be interesting at homecoming festivities, but let's be honest, bigotry and intolerance operate in whispers, not bullhorns, most of the time. I'm so encouraged to see inclusion and allyship in today's youth, especially in the face of harsh resistance from intolerant peers. Thank you for everything you do with the podcast. You help me get through the bad news days and give me someone to giggle with during the good news days. Ah, oh, it's wonderful, Anonymous. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. It, it is the, the youths, you know, they are going to save us. If you have anything you want to submit, you want me to read, you want me to sing, you want Dana to... Amy. You can do that by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. We'll be back tomorrow with more news. Until then, everyone, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been Alison Gill, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Alison Gill, with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane